0: But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Emily Adams. Thank you so, so much, Emily, for your donation. Um, and for anyone else who doesn't know, Emily is uh, one of the many people who supports Sleepy on Patreon.com with uh, small donations that are a dollar, $2 a month, $5 a month gets you access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send exclusive poetry readings to you twice a month just for donating. So if the Sleepy Podcast helps you get better sleep and makes you uh, more refreshed the next day or maybe even just introduces you to a new book you really like that you didn't really know about before, consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating like Emily. And of course, as soon as you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show, so that your name is emblazoned on the halls of the Sleepy Podcast forevermore. So again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Just one more quick note before we start. Um, I would like to know more about you. What I mean is, I know that a lot of people listen to Sleepy, but sometimes it's hard to um, kind of know who my listener actually is, and I know that the Sleepy audience ranges from uh, six-year-olds who really like our stories about Peter Pan and the Little Mermaid to medical students who want to use the sleepy podcast to get naps in between classes to people who maybe are 60 70 years old who like listening to the show for the old stories i know that the sleepy audience is very diverse but still i would love to know kind of more about who's listening to the show so if you'd like to help me out by doing this there's a link in the description of this show and that link will bring you to the survey, and it doesn't take that long, and I would really appreciate it. Thank you. So because I just yapped yeah, quite a lot, I'd like to just get to the story for you. And tonight we're going to be reading a much-requested author, D.H. Lawrence. We're going to be reading the story, The Ladybird." It's been highly requested, and I was walking around New Orleans the other day, and there was one of those give-a-book, take-a-book things. Um, except because this is New Orleans it was a casket that was stood up against the wall of a building with a glass casing as a door and then there was a little skeleton on top of it as well pretty cool place to get a book from and staring right out at me was this book by D.H. Lawrence so that is what we're going to be reading tonight and now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow, just how you like it, feel yourself melt into your bed, get real comfortable, close your eyes, and let me read to you. swords had lady Beveridge in her pierced heart yet there always seemed to be room for another since she had determined that her heart of pity and kindness should never die if it had not been for this determination she herself might have died of sheer agony in the years 1916 and 1917 when her boys were killed and her brother and death seemed to be mowing with wide swaths through her family But let us forget Lady Beveridge loved humanity And come what might She would continue to love it Nay, in the human sense She would love her enemies Not the criminals among the enemy The men who committed atrocities But the men who were enemies Through no choice of their own She would be swept Into no general hate Somebody had called her the soul of England. It was not ill said, though she was half Irish, but of an old, aristocratic, loyal family, famous for its brilliant men. And she, Lady Beveridge, had for years as much influence on the tone of English politics as any individual alive. The close friend of the real leaders in the House of Lords and in the Cabinet, she was content that the men should act so long as they breathe from her as from the rose of life, the pure fragrance of truth and genuine love. She had no misgivings regarding her own spirit. She, she would never lower her delicate silken flag. For instance, throughout all the agony of the war, she never forgot the enemy prisoners. She was determined to do her best for them. During the first years, she still had influence But during the last years of the war Power slipped out of the hands of her and her sword And she found she could do nothing anymore Almost nothing Then it seemed as if the many swords had gone home Into the heart of this little, unyielding Mater de la Rosa The new generation jeered at her She was no longer a fashionable little aristocrat. Since the war, her drawing room was out of date. But we anticipate. The years 1916 and 1917 were the years when the old spirit died forever in England. But Lady Beveridge struggled on. She was being beaten. It was the winter of 1917 Or in late autumn. She had been for a fortnight sick, stricken, paralyzed by the fearful death of her youngest boy. She felt she must give in and just die. And then she remembered how many others were lying in agony. So she rose, trembling, frail, to pay a visit to the hospital where lay the enemy sick and wounded near London. Countess Beveridge was still a privileged woman. Society was beginning to jeer at this little, worn bird of an out-of-date righteousness and aesthetic, but they dared not think ill of her. She ordered the car and went alone. The Earl, her husband, had taken his gloom to Scotland. So, on a sunny, wan November morning, Lady Beveridge descended at the hospital. Hurst Place The guard knew her And saluted as she passed Ah She was used to such deep respect It was strange that she felt it so bitterly When the respect became shallower But she did It was like the beginning of the end to her The matron went with her into the ward Alas, the beds were all full and men were even lying on pallets on the floor. There was a desperate, crowded dreariness and hopelessness in the place, as if nobody wanted to make a sound or utter a word. Many of the men were haggard and unshaven. One was delirious and talking fitfully in the Saxon dialect. It went to Lady Beveridge's heart. She had been educated in Dresden, and had had many dear friendships in the city. Her children also had been educated there. She heard the Saxon dialect with pain. She was a little, frail, bird-like woman. Elegant, but with that touch of blue stocking of the 90s, which was unmistakable. She fluttered delicately from bed to bed, speaking in perfect German but with a thin English intonation and always asking if there was anything she could do. The men were mostly officers and gentlemen. They made little requests which she wrote down in a book. Her long, pale, rather worn face and her nervous little gestures somehow inspired confidence. One man lay quite still with his eyes shut, he had a black beard. His face was rather small and sallow. He might be dead. Lady Beveridge looked at him earnestly, and fear came into her face. Why, Count Dionys? she said, fluttered, are you asleep? It was Count Johann Dionys Sanik, Bohemian. She had known him when he was a boy, and only in the spring of 1914, he and his wife had stayed with Lady Beveridge in her country house in Leicestershire. The black eyes opened, large, black, unseeing eyes with curved black lashes. He was a small man, small as a boy, and his face, too, was rather small. But all the lines were fine As if they had been fired with a keen male energy Now the yellowish, swarthy paste of his flesh seemed dead And the fine black brows seemed drawn on the face of one dead The eyes, however, were alive But only just alive Unseeing and unknowing You know me, Count Dianus You know me, don't you? Said Lady Beveridge Bending forward over the bed There was no reply for some time Then the black eyes gathered a look of recognition And there came the ghost of a polite smile Lady Beveridge, The lips formed the words There was practically no sound I am so glad you can recognize me I am so sorry you are hurt I am so sorry The black eyes watched her from that terrible remoteness of death without changing. There is nothing I can do for you. Nothing at all, she said, always speaking German. And after a time, as from some distance, came the answer from his eyes. A look of weariness, of refusal, and a wish to be left alone. He was unable to strain himself into consciousness, His eyelids dropped I am so sorry, she said If ever there is anything I can do The eyes opened again, looking at her He seemed at last to hear And it was as if his eyes made the last weary gesture of a polite bow Then slowly his eyelids closed again Poor Lady Beveridge felt another sword thrust of sorrow in her heart as she stood looking down at the motionless face and at the black, fine beard. The black hairs came out of his skin, thin and fine, not very close together. A queer, dark, aboriginal little face he had, with a fine little nose. Not an Aryan, surely. And he was going to die. He had a bullet through the upper part of his chest and another bullet had broken one of his ribs. He had been in the hospital five days. Lady Beveridge asked the matron to ring her up if anything happened. Then she drove away, saddened. Instead of going to Beveridge House, she went to her daughter's flat near the park, near Hyde Park. Lady Daphne was poor, She had married a commoner, son of one of the most famous politicians in England, but a man with no money. And Earl Beveridge had wasted most of the large fortune that had come to him so that the daughter had very little, comparatively. Lady Beveridge suffered, going in the narrow doorway into the rather ugly flat. Lady Daphne was sitting by the electric fire, in the small yellow drawing room, talking with a visitor. She rose at once, seeing her little mother. Why, mother, ought you be out? I'm sure not. Yes, Daphne, darling. Of course I ought to be out. How are you? The daughter's voice was slow and sonorous, protective, sad, Lady Daphne was tall, only 25 years old. She had been one of the beauties when the war broke out and her father had hoped she would make a splendid match. Truly, she had married fame, but without money. Now, sorrow, pain, thwarted passion had done her great damage. A tall, beautifully built girl, she had the fine stature of her father. Her shoulders were still straight, but how thin her white throat. She wore a simple black frock stitched with colored wool round the top and held in a loose colored girdle. Otherwise, no ornament. And her face was lovely, fair, with a soft, exotic white complexion and delicate pink cheeks. Her hair was soft and heavy, of a pallid gold quality, ash blonde. Her hair, her complexion, were so perfectly cared for as to be almost artificial, like a hothouse flower. But alas, her beauty was a failure. She was threatened with dices and was far too thin. Her eyes were the saddest part of her. They had slightly reddened rims, nerve-worn, with heavy-veined lids that seemed as if they did not want to keep up. The eyes themselves were large and of a beautiful green-blue color, but they were dull, languid, almost glaucus. Standing as she was, a tall, finely-built girl, looking down with affectionate care on her mother, She filled the heart with ashes. The little pathetic mother, so wonderful in her own way, was not really to be pitied for all her sorrow. Her life was in her sorrows and her efforts on behalf of the sorrows of others. But Daphne was not born for grief and philanthropy. With her splendid frame and her lovely, long, strong legs, she was Artemis, or Atalanta, rather than Daphne. There was a certain width of brow, and even of chin, that told a strong, reckless nature, and the curious, distraught slant of her eyes told of a wild energy dammed up inside her. That was what ailed her, her own wild energy. She had it from her father, and from their father's desperate race. The earldom had begun with the ride as daredevil border soldier, and this was the blood that flowed on. And alas, what was to be done with it? Daphne had married an adorable husband, truly an adorable husband, whereas she needed a daredevil. But in her mind she hated all daredevils, She had been brought up by her mother to admire only the good. So, her reckless, anti-philanthropic passion could find no outlet, and should find no outlet, she thought. So her own blood turned against her, beat on her own nerves, and destroyed her. It was nothing but frustration and anger which made her ill, and made the doctors fear consumption. There it was, drawn on her rather wide mouth. Frustration, anger, bitterness. There it was the same in the roll of her green-blue eyes, a slanting, averted look, the same anger furtively turning back on itself. This anger reddened her eyes and shattered her nerves, and yet her whole will was fixed in her adoption of her mother's creed and in condemnation of her handsome, proud, brutal father who had made so much misery in the family. Yes, her will was fixed in the determination that life should be gentle and good and benevolent, whereas her blood was reckless, the blood of daredevils. Her will was the stronger of the two, but her blood had its revenge on her, So, it is with strong natures today, shattered from the inside. "'You have no news, darling?' asked the mother. "'No. "'My father-in-law had information that British prisoners had been brought into Hazron, "'and that details would be forwarded by the Turks. "'And there was a rumor from some Arab prisoners "'that Basil was one of the British brought in wounded.' Where did you hear this? Primrose came in this morning. Then we can hope, dear. Yes. Never was anything more dull and bitter than Daphne's affirmative of hope. Hope had become almost a curse to her. If you wish there need be no such thing. Ah, huh. The torment of hoping and the insult to one's soul like the importunate widow dunning for her desserts why could it not all be just clean disaster and have done with it this dilly-dallying with despair was worse than despair she had hoped so much ah for her darling brothers she had hoped with such anguish and the two that she loved best were dead So were most others she had hoped for, dead. Only this uncertainty about her husband still rankling. You feel better, dear, said the little unquenched mother. Rather better, came the resentful answer. And your night? No better. There was a pause. You are coming to lunch with me, Daphne, darling. No, mother dear. I promised to lunch at the Howards with Primrose. But I didn't go for a quarter of an hour. Do sit down. Both women seated themselves near the electric fire. There was that bitter pause, neither knowing what to say. Then Daphne roused herself to look at her mother. Are you sure you were fit to go out? She said. What took you out so suddenly? I went to Hearst Place, dear. I had the men on my mind, after the way the newspapers have been talking. Why ever do you read the newspapers, blurted Daphne, with a certain burning, acid anger? Well, she said, more composed. And do you feel better... Now you've been. So many people suffer besides ourselves, darling. I know they do. Makes it all the worse. It wouldn't matter if it were only just us. At least, it would matter, but one could bear it more easily. To be just one of a crowd, all in the same state. And some even worse, dear. Oh, quite. And the worst it is for all, the worst it is for one. Is that so, darling? Try not to see too darkly. I feel if I can give just a little bit of myself to help the others, you know, it alleviates me. I feel that what I can give to the men lying there, Daphne, I give to my own boys. I can only help them now through helping others. But I can still do that, Daphne, my girl And the mother put her little white hand Into the long, white, cold hand of her daughter Tears came to Daphne's eyes And a fearful, stony grimace to her mouth It's so wonderful of you That you can feel like that, she said But you feel the same, my love I know you do no, I don't. And for when I see suffering, these same awful things, it makes me wish more for the end of the world And I quite see the world won't end. But it will get better, dear. This time is like a great sickness, like a terrible pneumonia tearing the breast of the world. Do you believe it will get better? I don't. It will get better. Of course it will get better. It is perverse to think otherwise, Daphne. Remember what has been before, even in Europe. Ah, Daphne, we must take a bigger view. Yes, I suppose we must. The daughter spoke rapidly from the lips in a resonant, monotonous tone the mother spoke from the heart and Daphne I found an old friend among the men at her's place who? little count Dionysus Sanic you remember him? quite what's wrong? wounded rather badly through the chest so ill did he speak to him? Yes, I recognize him in spite of his beard. Beard? Yes, a black beard. I suppose he could not be shaven. It seems strange that he is still alive. Poor man. Why strange? He isn't old. How old is he? Between thirty and forty. But so ill. So wounded, Daphne. And so small, so small, so sallow, smorto. You know the Italian word, the way dark people look. There's something so distressing in it. Does he look very small now, uncanny? Asked the daughter. No, not uncanny. Something of the terrible far of a child that is very ill and can't tell you what hurts it. Poor Count Dynas, Daphne. I didn't know, dear, but his eyes were so black and his lashes so curved and long. I never thought of him as beautiful. Nor I, only a little comical. Such a dapper little man. Yes And yet now, Daphne There's something remote And in a sad way heroic in his dark face Something primitive What did he say to you? He couldn't speak to me Only with his lips, just my name So bad as that Oh yes They're afraid he will die Poor Count Dinah's. I liked him. He was a bit like a monkey. But he had his points. He gave me a thimble on my 17th birthday. Such an amusing thimble. I remember, dear. Unpleasant wife, though. Wonder if he minds dying far away from her. Wonder if she knows. I think not, didn't even know his name properly, only that he was a colonel of such and such a regiment. Fourth cavalry, said Daphne. Poor Count Dinus. such a lovely name, I always thought. Count Johann Dinus Sannick. Extraordinary dandy he was, and an amazingly good dancer. Small, yet electric. Wonder if he minds dying. He was so full of life, in his own little animal way. They say small people are always conceited, but he doesn't look conceited now, dear. Something ages old in his face. And yes, a certain beauty, Daphne. You mean long lashes? No. So still, so solitary, and ages old in his race. I suppose he must belong to one of those curious little aboriginal races of Central Europe. I felt quite new beside him. How nice of you, said Daphne. Nevertheless, next day Daphne telephoned to her place to ask for news of him. He was about the same. She telephoned every day. Then she was told he was a little stronger. The day she received the message that her husband was wounded and a prisoner in Turkey and that his wounds were healing, she forgot to telephone for news of the little enemy count. And the following day, she telephoned that she was coming to the hospital to see him. He was awake, more restless, more in physical excitement. They could see the tension of pain between his brows and a curious, peaked look of the nausea of pain around his nose. His face seemed to Daphne curiously hidden behind the black beard, which nevertheless was thin, each hair combing fine and thin, singly from the sallow, slightly translucent skin. In the same way, his mustache made a thin black line around his mouth. His eyes were wide open, very black, and of no legible expression. He watched the two women coming down crowded, dreary room as if he did not see them. His eyes seemed too wide. It was a cold day and Daphne was huddled in a black sealskin coat with a skunk collar pulled up to her ears and a dull gold cap with wings pulled down on her brow. Lady Beveridge wore her stable coat and had that odd, untidy elegance which was natural to her, rather like a ruffled chicken. Daphne was upset by the hospital. She looked from right to left in spite of herself, and everything gave her a dull feeling of horror. The terror of these sick, wounded men. She loomed tall and obtrusive in her furs by the bed, a little mother at her side. I hope you don't mind my coming, she said in German to the sick man. Her tongue felt rusty, speaking the language. Who is it then? He asked. It is my daughter, Lady Daphne. You remember me, Lady Beveridge. This is my daughter, whom you knew in Saxony she was so sorry to hear you were wounded the black eyes rested on the little lady then they returned to the looming figure of Daphne A certain fear grew on the sick brow it was evident that presences loomed and frightened him he turned his face aside Daphne noticed how his fine black hair grew uncut over his small, animal ears. You don't remember me, Count Dinus, she said dully. Yes, he said, but he kept his face averted. She stood there, feeling confused and miserable, as if she had made a faux pas in coming. Would you rather be left alone, she said, I'm sorry Her voice was monotonous She felt suddenly stifled in her closed furs And threw her coat open Showing her thin white coat And plain black slip dress On her flat breast He turned again unwillingly To look at her He looked at her As if she were some strange creature Standing near him goodbye she said do get better she was looking at him with a queer slanting downward look of her heavy eyes as she turned away she was still a little red around the eyes with her nervous exhaustion you are so tall he said still frightened I was always tall she replied turning half to him again And die small, he said. I'm so glad you are getting better, she said. I am not glad, he said. Why? I'm sure you are. Just as we are glad because we want you to get better. Thank you, he said. I have wished to die. Don't do that, Count Dinus. Do get better, she said, in the rather deep, laconic manner of her girlhood. He looked at her with a farther look of recognition, but his short, rather pointed nose was lifted with the disgust and weariness of pain. His brows were tense. He watched her with that curious flame of suffering which is forced to give a little outside attention but which speaks only to itself. Why do they not let me die, he said. I wanted death now. No, she said. You mustn't. You must live. If we can live, we must. I wanted death, he said. Ah, well, she said. Even death, we can't have when we want it or when we think we want it. That is true, he said, watching her with the same wide black eyes. "Please to sit down. You are so tall as you stand. It was evident he was a little frightened still by her looming, overhanging figure. I'm sorry I'm too tall, she said, smiling, taking a chair which a man-nurse had brought to her. Lady Beveridge had gone away to speak with the men. Daphne sat down, not knowing what to say further. The pitch-black look in the Count's wide eyes puzzled her. Why do you come here? Why does your lady mother come, he said. To see if we can do anything, she answered. When I am well, I will thank your ladyships. All right, she replied. When you are well, I will let my lord, the count, thank me. Please do get well. We are enemies, he said. Who? You and my mother? Are we not? The most difficult thing is to be sure of anything. If they had let me die. That is at least ungrateful. Count Dinah. Lady Daphne. Yes. Lady Daphne. Beautiful the name is. You are always called Lady Daphne. I remember you were so bright a maiden. More or less. She said. Answering his question. Act. We should all have new names now. I thought of a name for myself, but I've forgotten it. No longer Johann Dianas. That is shot away. I am Carl, or Wilhelm, or Ernst, or George. Those are names I hate. Do you hate them? I don't like them, but I don't hate them and you mustn't leave off being Count Johann Dinus. If you do, I shall have to leave off being Daphne. I like your name so much. Lady Daphne, Lady Daphne, he repeated. Yes, it rings well. It sounds beautiful to me. I think I talk foolishly. I hear myself talking foolishly to you. He looked at her anxiously. Not at all, she said. Ah, I have a head on my shoulders that is like a child windmill, and I can't prevent its making foolish words. Please to go away, not to hear me. I can hear myself. Can't I do anything for you? She asked. No, 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 no. I could be buried deep, very deep down, where everything is forgotten, but they draw me up, back to the surface. I would not mind if they buried me alive, if it were very deep, and dark, and the earth heavy above. Don't say that, she replied, rising. No, I am saying it when I don't wish to say it. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why have I survived into this? Why can I not stop talking? He turned his face aside. The black, fine, elvish hair was so long and pushed up in tufts from the smooth, brown nape of his neck. Daphne looked at him in sorrow. He could not turn his body he could only move his head and he lay with his face hard averted the fine hair of his beard coming up strange from under his chin and from his throat up to the socket of his ear he lay quite still in this posture and she turned away looking for her mother she had suddenly realized that the bonds the connections between him And his life and the world had broken And he lay there a bit of loose Palpitating humanity Shot away from the body of humanity It was ten days before she went to the hospital again She had wanted never to go again To forget him As one tries to forget uncurable things But she could not forget him He came again and again into her mind She had to go back. She had heard that he was recovering very slowly. He looked really better. His eyes were not so wide open. They had lost that black, inky exposure which had given him such an unnatural look. Unpleasant. He watched her guardedly. She had taken off her furs and wore only her dress and a dark, soft feather cap. How are you, she said, keeping her face averted, unwilling to meet his eyes. Thank you, I am better. The nights are not so long. She shuddered, knowing what long nights meant. He saw the worn look in her face too, the redden rims of her eyes. Are you not well? Have you some trouble? he asked her no no she answered she had brought a handful of pinky daisy shaped flowers do you care for flowers she asked he looked at them then he slowly shook his head no he said if I'm on horseback riding through the marshes or through the hills I like to see them below me but not here Not now. Please do not bring flowers into this grave. Even in gardens, I do not like them. Why, they are the upholstery to human life. I will take them away again, she said. Please do. Please give them to the nurse. Daphne paused. Perhaps, she said, you wish I would not come to disturb you. He looked into her face. No, he said. You are like a flower behind a rock near an icy water. No, you do not live too much. I am afraid I cannot talk sensibly. I wish to hold my mouth shut. If I open it, I talk this absurdity. It escapes from my mouth. It is not so very absurd, she said. But he was silent, looking away from her. I want you to tell me if there is really anything I can do for you, she said. Nothing, he answered. If I can write a letter for you. None, he answered. But your wife and your two children, do they know where you are? I should think not. And where are they? I do not know. Probably they are in Hungary. Not at your home. My castle was burned down in a riot. My wife went to Hungary with the children. She has a relative there. She went away from me. I wished it to. Also, for her, I wish to be dead. Pardon me the personal tone. Daphne looked down at him. The queer, obstinate little fellow. But you have somebody you wish to tell. Somebody you want to hear from. Nobody. Nobody. I wish the bullet had gone through my heart. I wish to be dead. It is only I have a devil in my body that will not die. She looked at him as he lay with closed, averted face. Surely it is not a devil which keeps you alive, she said. It is something good. No, a devil, he said. She sat looking at him with long, slow, wondering look. Must one hate a devil that makes one live? She asked. He turned his eyes to her with a touch of a satiric smile. If one lives, no, he said. She looked away from him the moment he looked at her. For her life, she would not have met his dark eyes direct. She left him, and he lay still, he neither read nor talked, throughout the long winter nights and the short winter days, he only lay for hours, with black open eyes, seeing everything around with a touch of disgust, and heeding nothing.